Have you heard the story about those, like, black-eyed kids? So there's a kid who's in his mom's car, and his mom's, like, in a store shopping or getting her hair cut or something. She's gone. But he didn't want to go. So he's sitting in the car, just hanging out, listening to the radio. And then out of nowhere, these two other children walk up and knock on the window of the car, and they say, like, hey, can we please come in? And the kid inside the car thinking definitely not, no way. So he says, no. There's one kid that's talking, but the other kid's just staring silently, and they both have black eyes, like black pupil, black iris, black all the way around. And they get really, like, aggressive about asking to come inside. And the kid doing the right thing is, like, definitely not and the, the two black-eyed children, like, start banging on the window and greeting and making this big fuss about getting inside. And the kid inside the car thinks something bad is going to happen. This is highly unusual and I should not be doing this. And eventually, the two black-eyed kids give up, walk inside the store where his mom is, and he sees them like through the window talking to his mother and they eventually leave and then when his mom comes back so her son starts telling her this whole story about the kids that are outside and blah 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 and she goes that's so weird they just came in and asked for my keys to the car okay so i heard so we're on the bus my dad to to dallas Mm mm-hmm one time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad a man came out of the restaurant. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, our fears and fables say about us as humans. We want to thank everybody for subscribing to the podcast. We've seen a really nice little bump in our numbers, and we want to say hi to all of you new listeners, and thanks for joining us. We also want to encourage you to rate and review on iTunes, and we would love to see some stars from all of you fine folks. That would be fabulous definitely helps other people find out about this podcast and we just want to spread the word because we have way too much fun doing this yeah we have to justify the 75 hours of research we're doing every week somehow so (laughs) stars would do it stars would do it it'd be great we're kind of writing a term paper every week yeah because that's what i do for fun no really that's what i do for fun (laughs) so sam have you ever seen the black eyed children I've had some weird encounters with kids, but not these kids. This is a different thing than I've ever been privy to. I've not been lucky enough. Is that the right word? I've not been fortunate enough to have a run-in with a black-eyed child. Have you? I mean, you see kids all day, right? I've seen a lot of children with dark eyes. I've seen some children that really creeped me out. (laughs) But nothing like this story. This is a doozy. This is kind of, I think, maybe one of our more prevalent recent supernatural urban legends. Yeah, it's definitely a newer one compared to some of the ones we've done. Mm-hmm. Although, really has roots in a lot 
of ancient folklore and tradition. Well, so many things do. So, so this is internet fodder to the extreme. Like this is the the stuff that Reddit is made of. Apparently, everyone who has a Tumblr account has seen a black eyed kid. I don't know. Maybe there's an association. Maybe so. Maybe staying up and looking at your computer screen until 5 a.m. seven nights in a row is like some kind of incantation. It calls the black-eyed children. Or maybe you're just exhausted and start imagining shit. Something like that. I don't know. But um, so people say that the kids are usually like have their face obscured in some way. They say that they're they come to doors but don't enter. It's like very vampire ish. They have to be asked to come in, and that they're absolutely filled with a sense of dread. Now these are kind of the common themes. Like they ask to come in. If you say no, they get more aggressive, and then they will reveal their faces and show that they have black eyes. And I'm always curious, what are they going to do once they get you or get well, in your house? You know, I guess in theory, if they get in your house, you don't like get to get back on Tumblr to tell people about it. Oh right, they steal your Reddit password. Yeah. Oh no, curses. But this story started for some reason. A lot of our urban legends start. Deep, Deep in, in the, the heart, heart of Texas. Texas. <laughs> I don't know why. But in 1998, Brian Bethel, who is a reporter in Abilene, Texas, sent out a story that he wrote on a ghost-related mailing list. Do you remember a mailing list? No, it's a mailing list. It's like you sign up and you get a newsletter. So it was on the internet, though, like not paper stamp kind of mailing list. We had dial-up and lived in the country. We didn't have... I was not on an emailing list. (laughs) So, Brian Bethel is credited as kind of starting this urban legend that has just blown up. And he's recounted his story several times on TV, and then he wrote it up in a news article for the Abilene Paper, Mm -hmm. in which he described the events occurring in 1996... Mm-hmm. Sometime in the spring or summer, he went to drop off his check to pay a bill. And, oh, wow, this was a long time ago. Yeah. And as he was writing the check in his car, he felt a presence. And the two kids peered at the driver's side window. He described them as you know 9 to 12 years old, dressed in hooded pullovers. Did they ask to wash his windshield? No. <laughs> Okay, so what happens? But next? you know, like, they were wearing the hoodies, so their faces were obscured. Oh, there are so many terrible things to be said about what hoodies have become today. Right, this was before all of that, of yeah, course. Yeah, okay. So he cracked the window, um, expecting to, like, ask for money or, like, wash his windows or something. And this was at night, remember? And he just felt this sense of fear and dread. And the kids started asking him to take them in their car to go see a movie. A movie? Yeah, the movie was actually Mortal Kombat. This all sounds legit so far. He knew there was way too late to see a movie, so he was kind of worried about this, and the kid kept pushing and pushing and pushing, just offering reassurances, saying, it won't take long, we're just kids, we don't have a gun or anything. Okay, that seems like a escalation. Right, that escalated. <laughs> he noticed his hand started to like stray towards the door like he was going to open it, But then suddenly he caught himself, and the kid became even more aggressive. They pulled their hoodies down and stared at him with their coal black eyes. And I don't think this means, like, just the iris is black. Like, the all of it, right? Like, the whites of their eyes are not whites. Right. Okay. And the black-eyed child looks at him and says, We can't come in unless you tell us it's okay. Let us in. 
And then he shot himself. Pretty much. He, <laughs> he locked the door and he drove off. And okay. when he looked back in the mirror, they weren't there. Of course they weren't there. It's a great kind of scary story. And he was telling at a party later. And one of his friends said that they actually had a dream that these black-eyed kids would come and they would kill him. It lent some weird credibility in a very not credible way, I guess, to the story. Like, I guess it reinforced the, the narrative in his mind, at least. Okay, so other than this guy and all of the internet, is there any evidence that there is such a thing as a black-eyed child, or have they ever been spotted or filmed or anything like that? Well, of course there's blurry footage on the internet. Ooh, well, yes, you're right. Now, you remember the video, right? Oh, uh, okay. So I, what I remember is the news report where they're focusing on some local politician kissing a baby or whatever, and in the background there's a cornfield, and then, like when they zoom in, you can see one of the kids sticking their heads out, and it kind of looks like a creepy out of time black eyed kid like it's not I don't know it's like ghosty but people are like it's a black eyed kid and I'm like it's creepy whatever it is right and then there's another drone footage of someone in the Canuck Chase forest in England and they swear that you can see a black eyed child in the background we see something there's something there it was staged or what? It would be a lot easier to stage that than Bigfoot. I mean, I think that's a lot of hair and makeup, and those exist, so whatever. But, yeah, so that's a big thing, and apparently there are a lot of sightings of the black-eyed children in the Canuck Chase Forest. It's like a little hot spot for them. And this is all after this story came out. And they're also very popular in Japan. It's a major feature in a lot of horror stories and films, the look at least, with the solid black eyes and stuff. So as we were saying, there's always stories throughout folklore and history of kind of mysterious children and these odd children that appear out of nowhere. No one knows where they came from and they have weird features. And one of my favorite ones is the green-skinned children of Woolcott. And so this happened in 12th century England. Okay, fun. Let's go on a journey, folks. We're going to travel back in time. At this time, they had big wolf pits set up around the town. What is that? So a big pit dug with, where they throw you know animal carcasses to attract wolves. So they would get trapped instead of coming and killing their livestock. And so one day they heard a ruckus from one of the pits, and they went and found two green children. No, they didn't. <laughs> no. A boy and a girl. They didn't find green children. Why would there be green children in a wolf pit? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Green, like all green? According to reports from 12th century England. So interestingly, there are a lot of reports of this in written text from that time period. Okay. Uh, yeah, William of Newbar wrote in the Historia Rerum Angelicum in 1189 about this story. And then Ralph of Cogshells also wrote about it in their Chronicum Angelicarum in 1220. And so these are two sources from that time period that talk about this. So is it a tale? Is it an elaboration? What? But these kids, it's really interesting because they spoke some bizarre language. Mm-hmm. And they were wearing weird clothes. And they wouldn't eat regular food when they tried to feed them. They only would eat raw beans. 
I'm amazed that anyone tried to feed them in 12th century England. Like, you think they would see the kids and be like, they are devils, burn them, witches. And maybe it had to do with that they were kids. Maybe so, you're right. They just had that air of innocence that children can have. Which you can say the black-eyed children... Might, might be the same way. Okay. And so eventually, well, the boy died. Oh, that's very sad. I'm sorry. And the girl lived, and she learned English, and she was able to tell them of where she came from. Okay. Did she have green skin this whole time? Well, eventually the green skin did fade away. And she said that... She was from a land called St. Martin, a region cloaked in twilight, surrounded by a swirling river. And they were exploring a cave and saw a light and followed it, heard a noise, and found themselves in the wolf pit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, 12th century England. But... What? Like, what? So there are a lot of theories about what this could come from. What? Of course there's the paranormal. Uh, That there came from the land of fairies. In Celtic mythology, you have your green spirits are more of your pure and innocent spirits. Oh, so they had like a double whammy of like green and being kids going for them? Right. But there are some other theories that they could have been people from another country, another part that didn't speak the same language, and that they had something called hyperchromic anemia. Of course there's a medical explanation. Why wouldn't there be? You know I'm going to have it, right? Okay, yeah, I do. Hypochromic anemia is historically called chlorosis or the green sickness. And it comes from having a low source of iron in your diet mm-hmm. and becoming anemic mm-hmm. and your skin can develop a greenish hue. It could be that these kids were lost, malnourished. Well, they only ate beans, right? You know, maybe they were living in the forest and they developed hyperchromic anemia from a diet low in iron and had a green hue to their skin. So maybe it's not just a story. Maybe there were figments of someone's imagination. I don't know. It just, that sounds so fantastical. One thing that I couldn't help but think as, as you were telling me about this nonsense is if one were to make up a fantastical land beyond the sea where one frolicked in autumn mist, would you really call it St. Martin? Would you call it Holly? I would, in fact. That would be much more logical to me. Like I said, I'm amazed about the St. Martin thing that kind of baffles me, but also, like, that they were not burned at the stake or treated as spawn of the devil instantly. Well, and some of that may be that they were young children. Right. And so that brings me to something that I find very interesting, which is the science of cuteness. Oh, of course. Cuteness. This is the kind of science I like. There are a lot of theories in evolutionary psychology and other branches of the social sciences which kind of think that babies may be adorable, children may be cute, because it's a survival strategy. So what are we surviving by being cute? Okay, well, think about it. If you are a woman who is living on raw beans in St. Martin and you have to feed yourself and that takes a ton of time and energy would you really voluntarily sign up to let the baby steal your foods or would you rather take all of the resources for yourself if you have a strong survival instinct so in order to make people care for their young there has to be some kind of bonding or immediate affection for them and so scientists think that 
over time, we have come to appreciate qualities that make children look like children, and that gives them a greater chance of survival. Yeah, and some of those things that make children look like children are you know, having large eyes. The eyes we were born with are the same size they will be our entire lives. Your eyeballs don't grow. It's amazing. You're also born with your te- all your teeth. But they're just like in your head. Yeah. It's interesting. And bigger heads. Globular skull is like the phrase on this list. I think it's kind of awesome. And they're hairless and you have different like shorter arms and legs. And of course they're cute and cuddly. Their jawlines are very soft. They have, you know, of course, small noses and small teeth and little short legs is another thing. Well, you know what is interesting is I think of that Russian study that was done with foxes. Uh And they were trying to show the evolution of domesticated animals and they found that in domesticated animals you had traits that were more childlike and those childlike physical traits were apparently linked to the behavioral traits because when they bred wild foxes to act more like domesticated animals they had child or puppy-like features right such as like floppy ears Mm -hmm. which floppy ears are not found natural in the animal kingdom Except for elephants. Well, elephants are also the only animals that evolved a trunk, which is crazy because I mean I think that's a really effective tool. I'd rather prehensile tail. I'm sure you would. And another interesting thing about this phenomenon, which is called neoteny. Neoteny is a juvenilization of features. And the other term is pedomorphism. One reason that humans have such a long period of time before they look like adults is because they need to be nurtured by the parents for learning. In order to cultivate intellect and reasoning ability, they have to have a longer juvenile state. And so it's theorized that over time we have evolved to look like children for longer because we have to be treated as children for longer. And so the kids that are cutest for the longest time get the most resources away from their parents. Which makes sense if we're evolutionarily established to like kids because we want to spread our genes, Mm -hmm. then we're going to want to raise them appropriately and give them sustenance and have them be able to grow up to be fit kids that they can go on and spread genes. In that same way, the kids that are nurtured for longer and receive more training from adults and receive more sustenance or shared resources from adults would have a better chance of survival long-term and would spread more genes. One interesting article I read about the phenomenon of neoteny is one by Richard Gould called A Biological Homage to Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. And he talks about how we've gone from like a sort of triangular, almost villainous looking steamboat willy with long spindly legs to this big cuddle monster that is the current incarnation of Mickey Mouse, where his legs are shorter and his face is like more pug nose and everything's rounder. His eyes are larger in relationship to his face. And I think that's a really interesting point because he's made to seem as likable and approachable as possible and also because it's a trend that you see echoed in so much animation and entertainment then why do i hate when our kids watch mickey mouse clubhouse so much because Minnie Mouse is probably everything that's wrong with the modern idea of femininity, but we'll talk about that another time. We're not doing an episode on that. <laughs> so we have that we love children. We take care of children because we are built to do that. You know, there's studies showing that any human, any human has a particular positive response, nurturing response 
two babies. Right. And that can be someone that has kids, and they actually do have more of a response. But to anybody, someone that doesn't have kids still has that response to a baby, even if they say they don't like babies. And there have been studies done that show that adults who have more childlike features are more likely to receive help from outsiders and strangers. So everything about people looking innocent makes us give them the benefit of the doubt and want to go out of our way to help them. But as children age and start to become, start looking more like adults, we start to treat them differently, we respond to them differently. But there is still a caring and nurturing thing. And you know, in pediatrics, we always say children are not little adults. And that's very true. Children are changing and developing throughout the years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever you're a younger kid, at 6 to 12 years old, you have a very different thought pattern than you do as a younger person or as an older, like, adolescent. And at 6 to 12, you have this concrete thinking pattern. So what does that mean? It's very obvious. The most logical explanation for something. Okay. So can you give me an example? So, you know, one idea is... If a kid thinks that if he stays out of his bedroom, it will never be bedtime. Or like when they think that if they close their eyes, you can't see them. Exactly. If they can't see you, how can you see them? Yeah, my sister was reading out loud once my mom told her to read to herself. And she said, but how will I be able to hear me? Through time, adolescents really start to develop a different type of thought pattern. And this is a slow developmental process. Paget's the scientist that really kind of championed this idea. And it really has been you know, a cornerstone of um, cognitive growth in children. And so whenever you start to have more abstract thought, thinking about different possibilities, they start to reason from known principles. I mean, they're forming their own ideas and questions from knowledge they already have. And they're considering other people's points of view. And they're also thinking about the process of thinking. Like they might start to be aware that they're jealous instead of just responding to the feeling of jealousy. Thinking of who are they? Who am I? Why am I thinking this? Uh, Am I right? Okay, so kind of self-doubt. They learn to doubt themselves. Oh, good. These all sound like positive lessons. There's something you're going to have in adulthood. (laughs) You better start early. Between the ages of 12 and 18, so during adolescence, is when we're really developing our capacity for abstract thought. Right. And that's sort of philosophical, I guess is a good way to say it, like kind of the capacity to create our own philosophy and understand morality and empathy and sort of the larger constructs that are just particular to humanity. Right, and some of those ideas that you mentioned in particular are things that develop much later in adolescence. Okay. It's why people always think of teenagers as very very self-centered because they've really not even learned to think outside of themselves yet. Okay, yeah, I'm familiar with that phenomenon. It's an ongoing process throughout this time period, correct? Correct. Like in six months, it might develop more. In a year, it might develop more. Kind of... All right, as you reach your different stages of development. Okay, so it's not the same for everyone. No, everyone can do it at different times. And some people, especially if you talk to Bajay, do not move through all of the stages and get stuck in one stage. That's cute. I bet those people are fun. What's Dave doing? Oh, he's in the corner with his eyes closed because he's tired of people seeing him. He's embarrassed about what he wore. I bet people have dated some people that have been stuck in some of these uh, pre-adolescent stages. Yeah. I um, Hopefully past tense. Hopefully. Okay, so we develop at different rates. 
there's like some societal agreement that between like 18 and 21, ding, we're done. The oven goes off. We're baked. We can. Well, and that idea is completely half baked. For some reason, we've made it pretty formally institutionalized within our societal constructs. Yes, but there's really no scientific basis to that. All right, that's why you can sign up to be in the military at 18, but you can't buy liquor until you're 21. Okay, so we've established that we think kids are cute because they need us to think that we're cute so that we will help them survive. And one of the reasons that they need help surviving is because they don't have the full range of reasoning in addition to, you know, not walking until they're like one or whatever and not being able to kill mammoths by themselves. They're not cognitively developed enough to survive on their own for a long period of time. It is interesting to see how that has changed over time. What was considered an adult several hundred years ago was very different than what's considered adult today. That's very true. Right, women were being married when they were 12 and 14 to 50-year-old men and that's gross. But anyway, you know, boys were going off to war when they were 12 or whatever. Yeah, we've we've definitely extended that adolescent period in our society. But at some point, we started being a little suspicious of children. The universal view on that the innocence of childhood started to sort of fall away. And that happened Kind of at a specific point in history. When was that? During the Industrial Revolution, when families started moving into more urban areas and parents started, you know, both of them being out of the house working at factories for 12 hours at a time, the children were left to sort of run wild in the streets. And this greatly upset the ruling class, the upper class. They were quite offended by the urchins, they called them, and street Arabs. <laughs> Street Arabs were these were these Arabs? No, it was just like it was just like kind of tilted racism. It was like they were like these people who were nomadic and lived in tents because they were essentially homeless, basically. Like their families might live in a little hovel, kind of off a main thoroughfare. But the kids would do things like go and steal copper wires or break into shops, run scams on people, and like cry that their mothers had left them and they really hadn't, and they were kind of just making nuisances of themselves. And so we kind of went, this isn't fun. Like, we don't want to take care of other people's children. And started developing some really strong rhetoric about the potential for bad behavior in children. And when children kind of moved out of the domestic sphere into the public eye, we kind of got this Lord of the Flies vibe off of them that was very disquieting. Right, so all of the more upper crust people were looking at these lower class people who had to go work in the factory, and their kids would just run wild. Yeah, and they were like actually being a little, doing things that would kind of qualify as misdemeanors, being a little delinquent, in fact, which I did not know until we started research for this episode that a child cannot be charged with a crime. They are charged with acts of delinquency which I think is really interesting phrasing. One fine, fine example of this I found in a book I read recently called The Suspicions of Mr. Wisher, which is a book about a very early Scotland Yard detective investigating a real murder that happened in a town called Road where a three-year-old boy was murdered. Really interesting book. Maybe one of my favorites I've read this year. I would highly recommend it to anyone. Pause. Go read it. Okay, how was it? Told ya. Okay, but anyway, I'm going to share a quote with you from it. It's from a paper that was writing about the case after a girl named Constance Kent, the victim's sister, half-sister, 
confessed to the murder after five years of silence in 1865. She was 16 years old at the time that she killed the young boy by slitting his throat and throwing him in a privy, which is a porta potty, basically. Oh my. Yeah, so it was very lurid and things. But her father was a wealthy man and they had a big country house. And so that's kind of the model for the country house murders is this case. But anyway, this um, paper wrote an editorial. They stated that from 12 or 14 to 18 or 20 is that period of life in which the tide of natural affection runs the lowest, leaving the body and the intellect unfettered and unweakened in the work of development and leaving the heart itself open for strong passions and overwhelming preferences that will seize it. Sad to say, it is the softer sex especially, which is said to go through a period of almost utter heartlessness. Girls were harder and more selfish than boys. In preparation for sexual passion to come, their hearts were emptied of all tenderness. And when a girl happened to also have a peculiar, brooding, imaginative, inventive tendency, the dream seems to grow and become an inner life, unchecked by social feeling and by outward occupation, till the mere idea, equally callous and wicked, fills the soul. So it seems like there's always been that concern that mistrust that worry about what's going on in the adolescent mind yeah nothing good there's this idea and i think that this is actually a fear of the extension of adolescence that you're seeing and so you have this period of time where they think their reasoning is that of an adult or close to it but they have nothing to occupy themselves with so they have this idle hands thing happening and it is allowing this sort of selfishness and brooding and murderous desire and bad feelings toward others to come to the forefront. All right, so kids are developing from this cute little cuddly thing that we just want to take care of into something that's really concrete thinking, but then into an adolescent. But we don't know what's going on in their brains. They're developing very differently, and they're developing who they are and their thought patterns, and we just don't know what to make of that as a society, it seems. No, we're very... I mean, it is scary. It's scary to be a teenager, and it's scary to no one. Hell. But just to put all those fears to bed, there was an article that came out in the New York Times in 1983 that stated that most young killers are products of bad environments, which that's so 1980s, right? They stated that the young murderer doesn't come from a typical American family. The average American parent doesn't need to be fearing being murdered. That's good to know. Relief, right? Sense of relief. But let's talk about some kids who maybe didn't come from the average American family. Right, like one of the classic American child killers. Well, the classic American child killer. The boy fiend. The boy fiend, yes, indeed, Jesse Pomeroy. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this horror story, there was a boy named Jesse Pomeroy who lived in South Boston in the 1870s. And he lived with his mother. His dad was abusive and kind of like in and out of the picture. Essentially, it was a situation where he was with his older brother and his mom. And there were some unusual things about Jesse's appearance, which I'm going to let you explain. Because I don't know the right words. I just know what the 1870s people said, and they're very offensive. Well, to talk about it, I'll introduce it by doing a quote from the Boston Globe at the time. Mm-hmm. And they said... So you're going straight to the really offensive things that I was trying to avoid doing. No, they're great. Okay. So he had a cataract eyes that would make his eye completely white. But they described it as 
their wicked eyes, sullenly, brutishly wicked eyes, and as in moments of wondering thought the boy looks out of them. He seems one who could delight in the writhings of the helpless victim beneath the stab of the knife, the puncture of the awl, or the prick of the pen, as he is so often delighted in. Okay, spoiler alert, but yeah. So, what did he do? So when he was 11, he got into some mischief, as kids are wont to do. Like stealing bubblegum? Yeah, no, not not this kid. He actually stole children. That's different. Yeah, it's different. He trapped seven boys in succession over the course of a few months, and he would strip them naked and tie them to a pole and beat them, and then eventually he began incorporating a knife into his ritual and in one instance he even poked pins into one of the victim's flesh but he didn't kill anybody well that's good it was good they said no jesse this is terrible you can't do this you have to go to reform school and so they sent him to reform school he stayed there till he was a good member of society and he stayed there for 1.5 years until his mom told him that she was going to look after him. And she promised he wouldn't get into any more trouble. And he should come home to live with her. And he was super good. And he was not super good. And he killed people. Oh, good. Yeah. So he killed one boy named Horace Mullen, brought in for questioning. And the town was aghast. But at the same time, there was a girl named Katie Curran, who was 10 who is missing in the area, and no one could find her. So while he's in custody for the Horace Mullen murder, the kid was found in a bog and had been cut up, was almost decapitated and really brutally murdered. But while he's in custody for this, at 14 years old, Katie Curran is missing and they can't find her anywhere. And his mom is going through a hard time financially and has to sell the place where she's had her dress shop. And they move into a small house across the street and they sell the place. And some men move in to do renovations. And as they're doing renovations, they notice a terrible smell, but they kind of get used to it. But one day this guy's like going to town with a pickaxe on a big pile of dirt in the corner and something flies over his head. And he's like curious. And then he uses his pickaxe again and notices a forearm with rotted flesh sticking out of the dirt and then to his horror he realizes that the thing that flew over his head was a skull and they found (laughs) katie curran and (laughs) it's a hell of a way to find her so this was pretty neatly tied to jesse as it was found in his basement right and whenever they were questioning him about if he did it well they were questioning about horace when he says this but yes they were questioning about the boy and they're like did you kill him and what do you think jesse says no i'm sorry suppose i did (laughs) i feel like he shot a man in you know, just to watch him die. He's nuts. At one point, just to kind of make the picture a little bit more conflicted than maybe it sounds, they brought him in to see Horace's body, and he started sobbing and told him, he said, please don't tell my mother. That's a great example of that lack of abstract thought. Right. Don't tell my mother, of all the things. But showing what a child he was. And then they asked him at one point what he thought a fair punishment would be. And he told them that he probably did need to go away for four or five years. At which point he'd come out and be more of a man and be able to resist these bloody urges. Yeah, just not able to think 
abstractly not able to think outside of himself. No. Adults go away for life for killing people. Why would you think? Or they're hung. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. And so that, what, was he hung? No. And there was a giant controversy about it. Originally, once he was convicted, he was going to get the death penalty and then it was overturned. But there were some incredible articles written back and forth in that florid, just yellow journalism style that was happening at that time. Porter at the time wrote, It was not only an extraordinary atrocity and crime, but of singular interest in psychology. What could possibly explain the motivations of a 14-year-old boy who kills other boys and girls for no other reason than the love of inflicting torture and death? A curiosity to see how they will act when he cuts their throats or stabs them. It was a an exhibition of fiendish capacity of human nature that anyone looking for an answer might have almost been tempted to revert to the old beliefs in werewolves or possession by devils. The unfortunate fact that of all living animals, the absolute cruelest is a young boy in that dreadful period between 6 and 12 years of age. Right. This is a monstrous time in development. Isn't that interesting? I have things coming out about how, like, all babies are evil creatures, and you have the idea of the id coming from Freud, like that pure, unrestrained want and selfishness, and, you know, everyone wants to kill their father, or everyone wants to kill their mother, or whatever. Maybe there's some influence of that kind of thinking at this time. I don't know why. It seems like on a dime, we turn and start going, no, they're crazy, and they're all coming for us. <laughs> right, this is the beginnings of the development of psychology. Yes, and the juvenile delinquents and the fear of other people not parenting their children appropriately. So the idea of executing a 14-year-old boy, even one so depraved and possibly insane as Jesse Pomeroy, just didn't sit well with the good people of Massachusetts. And there were, of course, very strong opinions on the other side of the argument stating that he should be put down. And one psychiatrist wrote that if a dog had rabies and mauled someone, kindest thing for both the dog and the victim was to put him down. You know, and it's back to that idea of that animal just below the surface. But in the end, Jesse was not executed. He was sent away for life. And he spent most of that time in solitary confinement. He died when he was 72. You know, fast forwarding a few years, there's still incidents of these child killers that are very disturbing. And one very well-known one is Mary Bell. Mary Bell, the girl from hell. She was lived in Britain, uh, in Scotswood, an inner suburb of Newcastle upon Tyne. On May 25th, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, she strangled a four-year-old boy, Martin Brown, in an old broken-down house. And she did that by herself. One thing I thought was so interesting is that when they found Martin Brown, they did not automatically assume that someone else was responsible for his death. They didn't know he was murdered right away. They thought it might have been some, like, derelict condition of the building he was found in or that he had gotten into some tablets that were seen strewn about the floor, maybe left by some vagrants or other ne'er-do-wells. One of the things that led them to think that was there were no strangulation marks on Mm -hmm. the neck. And later, kind of in hindsight... They said that Mary would not have left marks on his neck because she didn't have the strength to do that, like to create bruising. And that same morning, Mary Bell drew pictures in her notebook of a child in the same pose 
that Martin Brown was found in with little around him and the word tablet written out. And there was also a man walking towards the child. The next day, they she was with her friend Norma and her father caught Mary choking his 11-year-old daughter. And so, of course, he slapped her in the face and sent her home. Ah, simpler time. This was the 1960s, so... Later that day, a local nursery school was actually vandalized. Mm. Someone broke in and wrote notes. And there were kind of misspellings. You can look at these notes online. It's pretty easy to find. And leaving notes such as, uh, We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastards. Okay. Or, and my favorite is the one that said, I murder so that I may come back. That's very cryptic. That's like some true detective kind of stuff. Uh, they broke into a nursery school, or she broke into a nursery school and well, left these notes? Right, and she did it with her friend Norma. So four days later, Mary Bell actually appeared at the Browns' residence. Like the murder victim? Yes. And she asked the mom to see him. Well, she knew. Did she not know he was dead? I mean, it seems like she would kind of know he was dead. Well, of course she knew. The mom told her that. He's dead. And she asked, oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. I'm telling you, this kid is, like, beyond. Just beyond crazy. That's cold. And so on July 31st of 1968, the two girls then took a small three-year-old boy, Brian Howe, to kind of a garbage area around that town. They kind of lived in a slum and strangled him, mutilated his body, and even carved an M into the boy's stomach using a pair of scissors. They also cut off his hair, scratched his legs, and mutilated his penis. This is so organized. She really is for a 11-year-old girl. She has a victim pool. Like, the victims are the same age and look. She has a methodology. She's leaving signatures. She's inserting herself into investigations. There was a march after Martin Brown was found condemning the area that was called Rat Alley, declaring it as unsafe and demanding that something be done, like an organized protest by the people in the neighborhood. And Mary Bell marched in the front of that, carrying a banner. Well, of course. I mean, she fits all those classes. It is so typical of the serial killer. And it's unusual for several reasons. Her age obviously also she's a woman and really these are her first crimes and they're already appearing so well organized right and they are of course what we know about that's so disturbing i don't want to think that this kid has any time to have a history how did she get caught so a few weeks later mary actually attacked her friend norma and tried to strangle her uh, at the nursery sand pit and a boy saw mary do this and later told on her good for him Yeah, and that's how she was eventually caught. So she was convicted of manslaughter of the two children and was sent to kind of reformatory schools and prison. She was moved around. Her sentence was at Her Majesty's pleasure, which was a new thing for me. And that apparently means it's an indefinite sentence. But you know what? She was released. There's not enough therapy in the entire British Isles to convince me that that's okay. I don't know, like... Right, originally, the psychiatrist that spoke to her described her as intelligent, manipulative, and dangerous. But by the time the British reformatory school system was done with her, she was no danger to society and was released and is still alive and has kids and grandkids and has a secret identity. I can't get my head around this. I'm sorry. So prototypical, absolutely by the book definition of psychopath. Or a serial killer. I guess she fit the model for a serial killer. Well, she also fits that model. 
model that you spoke about earlier of those childhood killers coming from terrible homes. Her mother was a prostitute. Of course she was. Did she have a heart of gold? I don't I don't think so. Okay. She had some leather and bondage things going on. Okay, well that doesn't mean she didn't have a heart of gold. Let's not be narrow-minded. Well, I guess you're right. But according to the BBC documentary, Mary very possibly could have seen the men coming in and out and some of these S&M-like acts going on. Right, and if you don't have the context for that as a kid, what do you think's happening? It just looks violent. Exactly, still have that concrete thought pattern. Yeah. No abstraction. Not able to think past what's going on. Violence is occurring. You're watching either someone inflict violence on your mother or your mother inflicting violence on someone else. It wouldn't be far to think that there was there was strangulation involved in this. Yeah, no, I can I can see that. Mary Bell, 1968. Is that kind of the last hurrah for the child killer? There are examples dating up to today of child killers, but these kind of psychopathic killers. Really, there's another disturbing case that occurred in the 90s. The Battery Kids? Yeah, it disturbs me that you call them that. I can never remember their names, and it's like the thing that stuck with me the most. We'll get to the batteries, but let's start at the beginning. So, in 1993, there were two boys in England named Robert Thompson and John Venables. And they were skipping school. They're about 10 years old and they decided to play hooky and they kidnapped and murdered a three-year-old boy named James Patrick Bulger. He was two at the time, actually. And they went to a shopping mall and kind of spotted him and just walked out with him. And there's actually CCTV footage of them just holding the kid's hand and walking out. You can actually watch this security footage of it. I have to say, like, this is one that really bothers me. Like, I, I read a lot about murder. I, I know. Whatever. I read a lot about murder. And this sticks in my head as just being so terrible. And I think it's that footage. I think it's just, like, actually seeing it happen. And, like, them wearing clothes like we wear today. And the footage isn't in black and white. And it's horrifying. So they take this two-year-old boy by the hand and walk him off. And what happens? Well, they walk about two miles with this kid. Which, how they got a two-year-old to walk two miles, I don't know. Well, apparently the whole time he was screaming and crying. They say at least 38 people in Liverpool saw this happening and did not intervene. That's so terrifying and awful. They threw paint in his eye. They kicked him and hit him with bricks and they hit him with a 22 pound iron bar. They placed batteries in his mouth. Bulger suffered 10 skull fractures as a result of being hit with iron bar. He suffered so many injuries in fact that the pathologist in the case said that he could not determine what was actually the cause of his death. And one of the disturbing things to me is that they then went and laid him on train tracks and weighed his head down with rocks with the intention of a train coming and bisecting him. That's a really awful thought process. The reason that the batteries disturbed me so much is because it seems, first of all, very arbitrary. There was an idea that they put the batteries in his mouth, kind of maybe thinking it would bring him back to life. I don't think that has any weight, because then they wouldn't have gone and weighed him down on the train tracks. Could have just been experimenting, but it was like the idea that maybe they were like that naive. Like maybe they had that little comprehension of what they were doing that really just made my stomach sink. So they were psychoanalyzed by psychiatrists at the time and were determined that they didn't know what right and wrong was before they went to trial. And they were again convicted at Her Majesty's pleasure and eventually released from prison on parole. Yeah, these boys are 10 years old. They look like they're 10 years old. Like, if you look up their mugshots, it's disturbing because they look like 
kids. All of these killers do. Actually, the three that we've talked about, you look at them and you think, children. Right, they're all, none of them are teenagers. Well, Jesse Pomeroy was at the time he actually murdered people. He was 14. Yeah, but he... But he was younger when he started. Yeah. I mean, it was already like an established pattern by that point. The idea that this has happened three times in history and probably more that we're not aware of and don't talk about is sickening. All right. I spend, I spend all day with kids. And to me, they're all sweet, innocent, little children. I cannot imagine any of them doing this. What do you mean, innocent? I mean, innocent can be kind of a subjective term. Yeah, like, when I think innocent, I think not guilty. That's what comes to my mind. But I guess it also means that state of innocence that we're all born in. You just don't know any better, is the idea. You can't be held responsible for your actions because you just don't know any better. And now that I think about it, that idea in and of itself is sort of terrifying. What idea? The idea that there are these little creatures that we adore and love and take into our home and share our lives with that just don't know any better. So that children can be vicious animals given the right circumstances and become killers. Yeah, because they don't know any better. Like that they're somehow absolved of responsibility just because they haven't been taught the difference between right and wrong. There's a great quote that I found while I was doing research from a psychiatrist who is writing about youth crime in the 1800s named A.A. A. Brill, who says that every child is a little criminal. He becomes a law-abiding citizen only when we have grafted inhibitions, do nots upon his impressionable mind. Well, and I'll leave you with a quote. And this is from not a psychologist, but John Bunyan, who wrote the book for boys and girls in 1686. Children become, while little, are delights. When they grow bigger, they begin to frights. Their sinful nature prompts them to rebel and to delight in paths that lead to hell. But it's just a story, right? Yeah, it's just a story. 